Hello. Hello. Welcome to our third episode of Ars Poetica, a poetry podcast in which I, Avery, and my good friend and Vico, and and we talk about poetry. We read poetry. Yeah. <laughs> we're doing great we're, today. We're, yeah. Um. Yeah. I just want to inform everyone I'm now the proud owner of a woodchuck skull. At least we believe it's a woodchuck. I'll have to look at my old zoo archaeology notes. And I guess you like, need we've we figured, figured out, out how many certain. chucks a woodchuck can chuck or whatever. How many how much wood a woodchuck can chuck. There we go. I can't speak today. <laughs> We're doing great. Anyway, I own that. My mother found it on the side of the road and brought it to me because she knows I like bones and that's like all you need to yeah, know. Yeah, that's about pretty much me. it. That's like Vico boiled down to fair pure essence. It's just bones. Which I guess everyone is so it's, boiled down is just bones. If you really think about it. Just which bones. is kind of morbid. <laughs> According to my research, you probably shouldn't boil bones if you want to preserve them for display. I might boil these anyway, just for sanitization purposes, true, true. because I need to order some bioenzymes and hydrogen peroxide before I can actually get to like for real cleaning. Right? Them. Yeah. This is this is a bone cleaning podcast now. Forget poetry. We're just we are now. Yeah, we're now on vulture culture. <laughs> Oh my god, is that a um, real thing? Or is that just something you made up? Vulture culture, it is it's I don't believe there is a podcast called Vulture Culture, but there is a um there is a subculture. No, it's people who collect like roadkill and stuff in order to like uh taxidermy and display oh, yeah. them and do stuff with bones. Oh, that's cool. I think bones are neat. They are neat. My favorite um, small animal skull is the rabbit skull because they have this really cool little like lace work on their cheekbones. Cute. Good craftsmanship. It's very fun. <laughs> nice work there, God. I'm also fond of coyote skulls just because they're always way smaller than you think they're going to be. That You've told me that before, and it's coyotes are just an interesting creature i love them they're they're good they're good creatures i'm sorry that i i'm sorry i derailed this <laughs> episode right at the offing in order to talk well, about we don't bones. really have an intro a solid intro so i think talking about bones for three minutes or so is a good enough intro as anything yeah yeah so uh, we introduced ourselves, right? Yeah, that was... I, I can't even remember three minutes ago. That's how life in quarantine is going for me. You're Avery, and I'm Vico, and we read poems and talk about them. I think you went first last time. I did go first last time, so you go first this time. I go first this time. Hee <laughs> hee, it's a good day to be Vico. It's always Vico. a good day to be Vico. 
Anyway, I I am finally reading a poem by one of my favorite poets ever, Rumi, um, Jalal al-Din, er, Jalal ad-Din Muhammad Rumi, um, who was a 13th century Persian poet and um, Sufi mystic uh, who has contributed a lot to Islamic scholarship as well as just world culture in general. He's just a cool dude. I just think he's neat. I just think he's neat. Um, I mentioned him either last episode or in the first episode um, as being one of those poets where, like, I read, I read his poems and I have... And I often have no idea what he's saying, but it still evokes, like, specific forbidden emotions. That's right, yeah. Like, emotions that I haven't patched in yet. <laughs> I haven't downloaded that content. Yeah, like, secret, hidden feelings that uh, that the government's trying to hide from you. You wouldn't believe. I don't know. I was trying to do, like, a clickbait bit there. I don't know. Keep talking. You won't believe what emotions the government doesn't <laughs> want you to feel. Number five will um, shock you. Anyway. One of my favorite fun facts about Rumi is that he was in love with another man. I believe this was another Sufi mystic named Shams of Tabriz. And you can find a lot of his poems, specifically a lot of his love poems, are dedicated to Shams. I don't believe the poem that I'm about to read was... Um, dedicated specifically to Shams, but you know, yeah, I feel that the most popular version in the English speaking world of his collected works is um, The Essential Rumi, arranged and translated by Coleman Barks. It is a beautiful book, but I, whenever I read it, I kind of feel like it's missing something because it doesn't include the original Persian versions of the poem. And as with most poetry that's translated out of one language and into another, you lose some of the, um, the rhythm and the like specific word choices. Mm. Like, in my opinion, a poem isn't just, like, the meaning that you can get from it. It's also, like, why did I choose to use this word instead of that word or this many syllables instead of that many syllables? It's about the... It's about the sensory experience as well as the words themselves. And you, you're kind of missing out on something when you read a translated poem without also getting to see it in its original language. Right. Unfortunately, I don't have this poem in the original Persian. I could not find it. Um, hmm. But it's a beautiful poem anyway. And I guess I will What's it start. Called? This poem is called Bismillah. Bismillah is an Arabic word. It's a sort of contraction. It means essentially in the name of God and it's 
something that Arabic speaking people will say um, before they start a meal, before they begin a journey. It It's something that you say at the start of something. Okay. Like, in the name of God, I am going to do this. Cool. Awesome. Um, and I know that because I took Arabic for one Gosh, semester. Gosh, you're so smart. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> I've forgotten most of my Arabic except what I use to talk to my cat. That's true. Everyone knows and, cats are all cats the are word bismillah. Yeah, all cats are fluent in Arabic. It's confirmed. Um, I go up to him and I go, "Oh." Katijalima, Katijalima wasauda, mashallah, mashallah. Um, and that is basically that means uh, beautiful cat, beautiful black cat. Um, praise God. <laughs> praise God indeed. Okay, read your poem. Okay, ahem, hem, hem, hem. It's a habit of yours to walk slowly. You hold a grudge for years. With such heaviness, how can you be modest? With such attachments, do you expect to arrive anywhere? Be wide as the air to learn a secret. Right now, your equal portions clay and water, thick mud. Abraham learned how the sun and moon and all the, st and the stars all set. He said, no longer will I try to assign partners for God. You are so weak. Give up to grace. The, oceans, the ocean takes care of each wave till it gets to shore. You need more help than you know. You're trying to live your life in open scaffolding. Say bismillah in the name of God as the priest does with knife when he offers an animal. Bismillah, your old self, to find your real name. Wow. Now, I believe this is the Coleman Barks translation, so it's less of a direct translation and more of a... Poetic translation? Yes. It's a translation that kind of captures more of the feeling than the exact wording, but... One thing I want to note that I didn't know the first time I read this poem several years ago is, so as with most of Rumi's poems, this was written in Persian uh, originally, which is why, so I translated earlier Bismillah as meaning in the name of God, and you can see Rumi also does that in the line, say Bismillah in the name of mm -hmm. God. And I assume that's because he was writing this in Persian, but he included the word, the Arabic word bismillah, which he was apparently known to do fairly often in his poetry, including both Arabic words and um, pieces of the Arabic, like the original Arabic of the Quran. Ooh, that's really cool. Yeah, I just. I was originally going to read a different Rumi poem, but I really wanted my first Rumi poem, because there's going to be others uh, on this podcast, to, like, he's fairly well known. A lot of famous people have, like, in the Western world, there's a lot of white non-Muslim folk who are like, oh, Rumi, 
we love him. He's he's changed my life. And like I feel the same way and I'm a white atheist who is raised Catholic, but I don't think it's fair to him or his writings to disconnect that from the fact that he was a Muslim and most, if not all, of his poetry is connected in some way to he was specifically writing most of his poems not just from the point of view of an Islamic scholar but as a mystic his poetry is literally prayer. Right. It's kind of like how I, it's kind of like how some people will, this is not a very great comparison, but um, how people will take Leonard Cohen's um, Hallelujah and like try to make it Christian, even though it's an inherently Jewish piece of music. I think that's a good comparison because it's sort of the same way there's a lot of people who take Rumi and kind of divorce it from his, the grounding in the Islamic faith. Mm -hmm. It's not just poetry, it's not just philosophy, it's a specifically Islamic and more specifically a Sufi way of viewing and talking about the world and the relationship to God and the relationship to other people. Right. Uh, and so, like, how does that, how would you think that that translates to us, two of us who aren't Muslim, who aren't Arabic or, or Persian? Um, how how are we to approach this poem in, in a way that, like, treats it with respect, but still lets us connect to it in our own way? That's a really good question. I think a lot of Rumi's poetry, at least that I've read, has felt very much like like advice about how to live your life. And as someone who's raised Catholic, it's always been a little bit interesting reading those poems from him, these poems that are about like how you should live, how you should view God, because they're very mm. different. Um, from the ways that Catholicism and Christianity in general kind of views God. He uses an ocean metaphor fairly often. There's one poem that he has that's entirely about how your relationship to God is like throwing yourself into the ocean. Mm. Um... It's very much like this all-encompassing, all-consuming relationship, but it's not one that, it's one that should be freeing and should help you and allow you to experience the joys of being alive, mm. um, rather than, as with, <laughs> I was raised Catholic, so I get to say this, the Catholic the Catholic relationship to God is one of, is one of denial. Yeah. You are supposed to deny yourself yeah. things in order to um, be virtuous in your relationship to God. Rumi doesn't tell you to do that. And obviously I've gotten kind of far away from the question of how we as non-Arabic, non-Muslim people can relate to Rumi while still respecting that. Yeah. He is Persian and 
Muslim? And I guess the answer is I don't really know. As with all things, it's a balancing act, and it is something that we have to be much more aware of as white Western folk than other people would. We have to, there's a fine line that I think a lot of white people struggle with of like, how do you appreciate versus appropriate? Mm -hmm. And one thing that you have to do is like, you do have to remember Rumi is Muslim. That's that's like one of the foremost things you have to hold in your mind and you can't read his poetry and separate those things. Yeah. You can't separate the poetry he wrote the which in many cases were in fact prayers. Uh you can't separate those from the fact that he was Muslim. Mm-hmm. But other than that, I don't know. It's it's so complicated. It's it's a question like the broad question of how do we appreciate something without taking it over um and without appropriating it from the people who it belongs to is one that has a lot of literature written about it. <laughs> That's true. Um and I think the the main thing you have to do is understand that you're not the we're not the um the leaders of this conversation. I mean in in the small world of this podcast we are the ones talking about it, but on a global scale we're not the experts of something. The members of the original culture are the people who are the experts. Of course, yeah. This has gotten away from me. <laughs> That's okay. We'll bring it back. Bring it back to the poem. Um, bring it back. Bring it back. I really love the the third stanza where it's Abraham learned how the sun and moon and the stars all set. He said, no longer I will try to assign partners for God. It's very much of a of this sense because I can maybe speak. This is like in terms of in terms of religion, the story of Abraham, it's, it probably means different things in all three of the, of the Abrahamic religions. But coming from a Judaic and sort of Christian mindset for myself, even though we were just talking about not doing this, but uh, I'm going to do it. Um, how <laughs> Abraham... S- he says, I'm no longer going to try assign assign partners for God. So like he sees how the world, the world and reality works. And he says, I'm going to let God take care of that. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to let God take care of that because he's got it down. Uh, And then later on, which is um, where he says, you give up to grace. Uh, You are so weak, give up to grace. The ocean takes care of each wave till it gets to shore. This kind of thing of like that continued ocean metaphor for God that you said that Rumi uh, explores in his other poems. He brings here to kind of like let yourself be able to allow yourself, allow yourself to not worry about certain things in the world that like these things are going to happen anyway. 
and and for Rumi, these happen because of God. But uh, if you want to take it out of a more atheistic or uh, divorce it from religion for a second, say these things are going to happen anyway. The ocean takes care of each wave. Like it's these greater forces, quote unquote, greater forces are going to take care of everything for you. So you don't need to worry about that much. Um, that's just, that's just an interesting thought. I yeah, had. it's it's very much one of the prevailing themes in his uh, works is this idea of like the relationship with God in his works is a lot less paternal than it is within Catholic thought. So it's not so much that God is like taking care of you. Like, it's not as much like, you are my child, and I am going to take care of you and tell you what to do and make sure that every... It, it's more like, God is the universe, yeah. and therefore the universe will run. The universe will... The universe, which is God, will do its thing around you, and you, who is also part of God, will exist within the universe and be um <laughs> no i get it <laughs> language just language just ran away from me there it's which is a problem that i have fairly often with rumi is that i feel like i know what he means but putting it into any other words than the words he used just yeah, doesn't it's work. Like he, it's like a it's a a code, and he has the right code. He wrote down the, the the code that like no other codes can can write down the exact meaning. Like all these words have different meanings, and he found the perfect ones for what he was trying to write. And I think that's that's another reason why things are lost when you translate it over into English. Um, because you're taking away the words that he chose and instead choosing words that are similar but not the same. Yes, and I think part of my problem with articulating, like, what do I think Rumi means in any given poem is because most of the Rumi that I've read has been the Coleman Barks translation mm -hmm. of his work. Um and at that point, it's more of a collaboration between Rumi and Coleman Barks as opposed to simply, like, Rumi's poetry. But unfortunately, I'm not fluent in Persian. Yet. At all. <laughs> I mean, I am, I am working on getting my Arabic back to conversational level. Mm -hmm. um, and then after that, probably going to work on my Persian specifically in order to read Ruby. I'm sorry, I'm trying to talk and keep my microphone away from my cat at the same time. Oh God, let him speak. Hey, Oliver, do you, do you want to talk? Do you want to talk? Hi, Oliver. No? Okay. <laughs> he just uh, bumped head bumped my that was microphone. the best audio i think we're gonna get of a cat so far unless he starts yelling who knows hopefully he won't do that Oof. um 
But yeah, I love Rumi. I believe I would enjoy him more if I. A lot of his poetry is actually can actually be sung. Ooh. Um, and I've heard it sung in the original Persian before, and it is like again, there's the there's the word choice and rhythm and like meter and everything that poetry has in its original language that you can never fully capture in a translation true uh and listening to rumi sung in the original persian is a really beautiful experience even if you have no idea what he's what's being said that's true sometimes language and like feeling transcend transcend words and sometimes like if you it's like i know as someone who um is a musician that like you sometimes the most you can communicate out of a piece of music is has no words sometimes um or is in a language you can't understand and it still speaks out to you in certain ways and that's more that's also a testament of the you know the composing skill and and the the, comp- the writing skill of Rumi and the poets. Yeah, I remember when you were singing him to St. Cecilia for like three months and it wasn't until the actual performance of him to St. Cecilia that I realized it was in English. <laughs> That's true. Yeah, him to St. Cecilia, it's a, um, uh, a choral piece by, there's a bunch of different ones called that by that title, but this one specifically one that I did with my chamber choir, um, it's uh, by Benjamin Britten. And it's a the poem by William or W. H. Auden. Um, it's a great poem. I actually might bring it here at some point because it's a pretty great poem. It's beautiful and thematically <laughs> appropriate. True. I one of the reasons I love this poem so much, aside from it just being a roomy poem, is so I first read it in my world history class, which was happening is it three years ago? Anyway, that's the class that you constantly convinced me to skip because it was the only class I had on Mondays and Wednesdays because all of my other classes that semester were on Tuesdays and Thursdays. That was Mm -hmm. a bad choice. But my first class every Tuesday and Thursday was Intro to Arabic. And so I had basically just learned what the word Bismillah meant and what its, like, cultural significance was. and then my world poetry professor assigned this poem to us to Uh read. And I think there's something um, very lovely about the last two stanzas. Say Bismillah in the name of God as the priest does with knife when he offers an animal. Bismillah your old self to find your real name. It's, um, so again, Bismillah Uh, in the name of God is something that you state just before you do something, just before you begin a task, either eating a meal, setting out on a journey, uh, etc. And you do it also prior to, as Rumi mentions, you do it prior to performing a um, religious rite, like the priest in the poem sacrificing an animal to god so you are saying in the name of god i will 
do X, Y, Z is what he's telling you to do is to not only to start something new with your life, but also to offer yourself up into the hands of God Mm. and from there discover your true self, your true position in the universe. That's amazing. Um, I think what I really like is that at at that last stanza, those last two lines, it's Bismillah, your name, which is, he almost turns it into a verb there. Like, Bismillah, your name. Like, like, this is what you're doing. You're praising, you're putting your name, praising your name, like, putting it to, like, into into hands of God, as you said, which is, um, I think another really great use of language. Which, as a div, as a, um, I was about to say, as a devout atheist, which is a wild statement, but does kind of uh, describe my standpoint on religion. I describe myself as a secular practicing witch, uh, which means. Generally speaking, in in terms of faith, I believe in myself and in the universe, and I perform spells, which are kind of like a prayer to the universe and also to myself, which is a completely different relationship to God than the one I was raised with, where, again, in Catholicism, God is sort of a paternal figure who has like the ultimate authority it's an it's an authority figure thing and then within secular witchcraft while it's different for everything the relationship is more that you are your own god Mm. so that's that yeah this is a very long-winded way of saying that it's it can be sort of uncomfortable reading texts from people who are devoutly religious towards a god within the Abrahamic tradition when you're atheist, especially if you were, you know, raised Christian. Christianity has a very specific kind of relationship to God that is very different from Judaism and Islam, even as part of the same like branch of religious beliefs mm-hmm. there is something way less uncomfortable to me at, about reading Rumi talking about handing yourself over into God's care and i'm not maybe it's because it's put in such poetic language but there but as an atheist who kind of like flinches back from the idea of giving myself over yeah. to God, uh, as it <laughs> were, uh, being beholden to God. When Rumi says, say Bismillah in the name of God, uh, Bismillah, your old self, I feel yeah. it. <laughs> I understand it. And it might be because I've read so much Rumi that I can, that I know that he views Allah as basically a cosmic force. Allah is the ocean and the wind and the universe and 
the laws of reality, the laws of physics, and also mm -hmm. you. That's a that's a um a concept that I sort of share uh with with uh Rumi, um, which is as as someone who is sort of religious myself, um and is and is coming into her own religion uh as I study different things. Um it's it's really great to see the see and hear all of these different perspectives on on what like the greater forces in life are like hearing your perspective uh and then hearing Rumi's perspective and then hearing other artists and other uh like philosophers thoughts on this it's it's a really it's one of the great things of being human i personally think uh is getting to hear all these differing opinions and occasionally we can get along with them. And so I think when we can get along with them, it's it's a really great it's a really great time. When we don't, it's not. But. Yeah, my personal view of my personal view of people and the world is like there are as many universes as there are mm -hmm. people because every person sees the universe differently. That's true. And Rumi saw the universe really beautifully. He saw it as a place that you should enjoy and you should love and feel love and um, you should believe that there will be good that that as the ocean takes care of each wave till it gets to shore, you too will be taken care of by God until you get where you're going. Right. We've kind of ignored, like, the first couple stanzas, which I know we've been talking about this poem okay. for a long time, but I do, I, I love the first couple stanzas as well, saying... It's a habit of yours to walk slowly. You hold a grudge for years. With such heaviness, how can you be modest? With such attachments, do you expect to arrive anywhere? It's basically, like, in the most basic terms, it's sort of like you have to let go of your earthly attachments in order to reach enlightenment, but that's not... Rumi is the guy who wrote an entire poem about drinking wine and having <laughs> fun. So he, he's not, I don't believe that what he's saying here is let go of your attachments in order to reach enlightenment and be fully like enlightened with, enlightened in and like one with God. It's more like you have to stop being dragged down by the things that happened in your past, the things that you might still be angry about. How can you truly express, how can you truly express love for God and for others if you're still grumbling about some slight that happened mm -hmm. to you? How can you truly let go of your physical reality and become enlightened if you're if you're stuck to stuff like that <laughs> he's basically just telling you to chill out essentially yeah he's basically just saying like all right man let it go <laughs> take a chill pill dude in, let it in go the vernacular language he's <laughs> telling you to take a chill pill 
it's, <laughs> it's like I found out a couple um a couple of years ago that I'm I'm not sure if I'm gonna say this right. I think it might be um Kyrie Elysium. I know it's Kyrie something. It's an old like Greek phrase related specifically to Christianity and like the Orthodox Bible, but in modern Greek vernacular it apparently basically means like chill out man. Okay. This is this is ter- this is turning into a new bit that's a subsection of the old bit, which is this is a subsection of the I make fun of you for mispronouncing French words. And this is a subsection of that bit where I make fun of you for mispronouncing Greek words. It's Kyrie Eleison. Kyrie Eleison. Eleison. I'm going to admit something that's going to be like, it's going to be sort of like telling on myself. I have only ever heard Kyrie like spoken out loud in terms of the character from the Devil May Cry series. Kyrie, listen, you've listened, you've gone to so many of my concerts where we sing that text so often. It is like the mainstay in choral music and that I sing almost every day. I have literally hundreds of pages of music. But there's no subtitles, so I have no idea what's going on. <laughs> subtitles! I mean the subtitles. subtitles. On music, sure. <laughs> Those are called lyrics, dumbass. Oh my god. <laughs> I mean the subtitles. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, I know. I I know what our title is for this episode is now. Thank thanks to you. Oh my god! It's called lyrics, dumbass. Oh my god! Can we move on? I'm tired of this. This bit. This bit's over. I'm so disappointed in you. I was valedictorian in high school. <laughs> oh my god, okay. Sometimes I just have to remind myself of that. I graduated summa cum laude. You did. You are... I had an almost 4.0 GPA when I graduated from undergrad. I don't understand you sometimes. Oh my gosh. Is there anything else you have to say on Rumi, or can we can we move on? <laughs> I love Rumi. This is not the last Rumi poem that Good. I will be reading. You can be assured of that. <laughs> that is a threat. <laughs> you heard it here, folks. That's a threat. Okay. Um, we'll scoot on over to my poem, which is uh, we're going to jump on up forward like a couple hundred years to the early 1800s or the actually just the 1800s. Um, my poet is one of my favorite poets uh, by the name of Walt Whitman. He was... That man sure did love him he, some grass. Well, he did love him some grass. Um, he was born on May 31st, 1819 and died March 26th, 1892. Um, he was a poet, obviously. Um, he was a humanist and um, his, his style of writing was, was mostly free verse. Um, and he was sort of the bridge, was part of the bridge of being, of the two movements, poetry movements of transcendentalism and realism. So his works kind of have this, have this weird, like, real feel about them, but also 
that 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 caring like transcendental feel of transcendentalism so which is something i really like about him he was born in huntington long island which is close to where i grew up i grew up on long island as well he lived mostly in brooklyn uh, and his most major work is Leaves of Grass, which we uh, just mentioned. Um, so I have here in my hands um, a uh, a copy, a beat up copy of Leaves of Grass, the first 1855 edition um, a copy of it, not the original, because holy shit, that would be wild. So my poem <laughs> that I'll be reading um, is the 20th of uh, in the first section of leaves of grass which is called song of myself so it's the 20th poem and it's kind of long um there are there are two major sec there are like two little stanzas that i really really love that i'm gonna that i'm gonna point out um after i finish reading it but i will read the entire thing first just because it's fun to read him and you'll get a sense of uh how his his writing goes Ahem, ahem. Who goes there? Hankering, gross, mystical, nude? How is it I extract strength from the beef I eat? What is a man, anyhow? What am I, and what are you? All I mark as my own, you shall offset it with your own, else it were a time lost listening to me. I do not snivel that snivel the world over, that months are vacuums and the ground but wallow and filth. That life is a suck and a sell, and nothing remains at the end but threadbare crepe and tears. Whimpering and truckling fold with powders for invalids. Conformity goes to the fourth removed. I cock my hat as I please, indoors or out. Shall I pray? Shall I venerate and be ceremonious? I have pried through the strata and analyzed to a hair, and counseled with doctors and calculated close and found no sweeter fat than sticks to my own bones in all people i see myself none more and not one a barley corn less and the good or bad i say of myself as i say of them and i know i am solid and sound to me the converging objects of the universe perpetually flow all are written to me and i must get what the writing means and i know i am deathless I know this orbit of mine cannot be swept by a carpenter's compass. I know I shall not pass like a child's oh, carlicue cut with a burnt stick at night. I know I am August. I do not trouble my spirit to vindicate itself or be understood. I see that the elementary laws never apologize. I reckon I behave no prouder than the level I plant my house by after all. I exist as I am. That is enough. If no other in the world be aware, I sit content. And in each and all be aware, I sit content. One world is aware, and by far the largest to me, and that is myself. And whether I come to my own today, or in 10,000, or in 10 million years, I can cheerfully take it now, or with equal cheerfulness, I can wait. My foothold is tendoned and mortized in granite. I laugh at what you call dissolution. And I know the amplitude of time. And Fuck, yeah, he he was quite like you can uh, as I was reading this because it's it's like it's an undertaking to read a single poem of his. I have to admit, I don't think for all that we've 
talked about Walt Whitman before, and I have known that he's your favorite poem or your favorite poet for like the entire <laughs> time I've known you. I have never read Walt Whitman before. It's it's because he's such like he's so in, he's so that. deep in the like American consciousness that like you don't really have to. Like there's there's a there, like the oh captain my captain poem that's his. That was him. Yeah. Then I lied. I have read Walt Whitman. I just I'm pretty sure it's him. Didn't remember. Yeah. It. Um. And like one of the other great lines of his is like, "Do I contradict myself? Like, yes, I contradict myself." Kind of thing. I'm. I contain multitudes. That that sort of thing is is that is is one of the. I distinctly remember one of my high school teachers reading that poem to us, but that's the only line I was ever able to like remember mm-hmm. from it. And I knew it was a Walt Whitman poem, but I don't think it counts if I can only remember <laughs> one line. Well, that's the, that's the thing is. But I think it's a it's a beautiful sentiment of like, do I contradict myself? Very well, I contradict myself. I am very large. I contain multitudes. Is such a it's a good statement. People yeah. are complex. It's such it's such a profound line of his uh, to to say that people can contradict themselves and that's okay. That can be okay. Like, obviously we all want to strive for some kind of consistency to be sure in ourselves. But I think that, that line, that, that, that statement is sort of letting, is giving us permission to be like, okay, sometimes we cannot make sense. We can be complicated. We can be all turned about and not know what to do. And that's okay. But back to this poem specifically. <laughs> so um, the two the two little stanzas that I particularly really love, um, and uh, I'll just read them out again. So the first one that I have like literally written in my book, uh, starred next to it. Um, in all people, I see myself none more and not one a barleycorn less. And the good or bad I say of myself, I say of them. So I, this this sentiment that really connects with me of like, it's really pretty much like the treat others the way you want to be treated kind of thing. Like you should look at everybody as if they were you and treat them how you would treat yourself uh, in some ways and treat yourself the way you would treat others, which is, I think, a sentiment that I think is sometimes often not really taken, like not as used as much as the as the vice versa whereas if you you wouldn't be mean to your friends so why would you be mean to yourself kind of thing. i really like this line i'm thinking something that i've encountered fairly often is so there's this thing that we as people do is that like when we're in a bad mood like we are willing to give ourselves the benefit of the doubt we know that we're speaking like harshly or being like grumpy because uh like we didn't get enough sleep and now we're running late and we missed breakfast and blah 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 but often when we encounter other people who are grumpy or seem like inconsiderate we don't always give them the same benefit of the doubt that's true and it's and something that i've personally been working on like as a person is like in all things, of all people, assume that they're trying their best. Yeah, sort of like, yeah, we, everyone's and trying I, their best. 
And especially like nowadays in, in this sort of climate that we're living in right now, this sort of like everyone is trying their best really, really hard. So you need to like, first of all, you need to give them the respect that they deserve and also give them the the resources they deserve for working as hard as they can and giving them that respect. Anyway, that's my soapbox. I'll step off. Right. It's a good <laughs> soapbox. But I was just, I think about that with this line of, in all people, I see myself none more and not one a barley corn less. So it's like, like you said, if you are willing to treat other people with kindness, you should also treat yourself with kindness. And if you're going to treat yourself with kindness, you have to give it to other yeah, people as it's, well. It's basically just Walt just telling you to be a decent human being. Um, and it, and it's, yeah. and it's here where I have to like mention about like, where I have to like talk about the poet again. Um, I was reading up on him and I thought like, so he was like, cause so he lived in the 1800s. He lived, uh, he was actually, um, he was involved with the civil war. He was actually, um, I think a nurse. He, he cared for the wounded in, in Washington, DC. Um, he was also like he had some interesting views on uh slavery. Um like he was for, at first he was opposed to abolitionism, which was interesting. Um he he's I feel like he was more kind of a moderate uh as, as terms, but basically I just I wanted to suggest like put out there that like I know that this man isn't perfect and like his like little statement here and all people I see myself kind of didn't translate to people of color uh uh at least that was how he was brought up to believe and maybe he just never considered that but however it was that's like a thing that has to be mentioned which I guess is something that's fairly common is that for as much as people try to or think that they have internalized all of those like you know the kindergarten messages of treat others the way you want to be treated be kind share etc like prejudices of the world around you the biases of the world around you of your parents of your teachers everyone like everyone wants to believe they're a good person and so they will say, like, remember the golden rule. Remember to treat others the way you want to be treated. But they don't always practice that. That's true. And uh, like to to really it's put like, it into practice is it's a it's a challenging thing um, to do, especially when you're surrounded by by people who say that they're doing it but aren't. And so, like, kind of creating this wall uh, or creating this this like pressure on you to not actually do it um in certain ways so it's like there was that section from a textbook that i believe you sent me on pedagogy um back when i was pestering you about what are children like because i'm trying to write a child <laughs> character and i don't interact with anyone younger than me i'm um, younger than you but okay and yes, I don't interact with anyone who's more than like five years okay. younger than me. And there was this one like section that was like, so this this mother goes to like a pediatrician or someone and like 
her kid's fine, but she's like, oh, but I'm having this problem with I keep trying to get him to stop, like, saying such mean, rude things all the time. And I don't know why he keeps doing this. And I keep, and the, like, pediatrician or child psychologist, like, observed the family for a little bit and then went back to the mom was like, you say mean, rude things all the yeah, time. Yeah, sort of put, like, you gotta put your money where your mouth is, How so you gotta, <laughs> you gotta talk about it. He's saying these things because he knows, because you say mm-hmm. them. Kids will emulate their parents, and so if you see... Like, obviously not with 100% accuracy, but if you see behaviors that you are, that you find, like, if you see meanness, rudeness, and cruelty, and prejudice in your child, look at your behavior first. Children are, children, this is, this, we're getting a little bit off topic here, but, um, this, but this is a great conversation. Um, children are the product of both of how they're raised and where they're raised and it's not their fault and it's like it's not their fault up until like when they become adults and then it becomes their responsibility but until they become adults it is your responsibility and the society around around them their responsibility for raising this child in a way that is that is like you know good uh quote-unquote good that is you know kind and like has a sense of community and like is all these things that like all the good aspects of society and if you don't do that you're essentially failing this child um which is you know it it happens a lot unfortunately uh something we wished wouldn't happen but it does happen a lot and i think like i don't know (laughs) my 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 thought is leaving my head so i would say in a perfect world, there would be, like, a test that you have to take before you can become a parent and raise a child. But, like, in the world we live in, that would get dystopian so fucking fast. Yeah, that's a lot of things that get would get really dystopian really fast, so. Um, but all of, all of this is to say that, like, A, old man Walt had his prejudices. And B, there's a prevailing human, like... Uh, trait of saying things that sound really good and like, yeah, I I treat others the way I want to be treated, and then not actually like, but like not actually putting that into practice. It's praxis versus yeah. practice. Um, that that's such a that's such a great point. Um, and I think it's it's I think it's really weird how so many of the great thinkers of our of like of of society of like of societies and like western culture predominantly because that's the one i was raised in um all of them are have such great points have such great points that i agree with and then i read up about the person themselves and they were just a piece of shit they were just god fucking awful when i was considering reading ee cummings and then i read up and i found out he was like a right-wing yeah. asshole. It's like, oh, well, now I can't... Re- like, I could if we wanted to do a death of the author thing, which I think should be in effect with most art. Um, 
but there's still like yeah. I love the some of the poems of his that I have written that I have read. Sometimes you find out about someone mm-hmm. and you're just like, ooh. Yeah. Ooh. That that's then that's sort sort of was like I was literally reading up on Walt Walt Whitman before we started. And I like on the Wikipedia page and I see a little title says slavery. And I went, uh-oh. <laughs> and so um, and I read that. And it's 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 if you read the Wikipedia article, it's very kind of vague and it's very much kind of like a he was against slavery but he wasn't like so gun ho about it um i just think it never entered his, his sphere of influence as it as it didn't affect a lot of people in the north um prior um especially like on long island um and like the new york city area he probably did not interact with many um with many with many people of color or at least former slaves stuff like that um I could be wrong, though. I, I didn't live during then, so I don't, I don't really know. And I don't I haven't really done much research on on this stuff specifically because this is a poetry focused um, thing. But this was something I wanted to like kind of talk about to like mention about Walt that, you know, he contradicts himself as he says himself that he contradicts himself. He contains multitudes, which is sort of why I'm still willing to appreciate him as an author, as a poet, and as a person, but still be able to criticize him for being uh, slightly racist, as most white people are. So, And there's always death of the author, as I said, in regards mm-hmm. to E.E. E. Cummings, um, which is, so death of the author is a sort of like literary examination technique wherein you are only looking at the text what the author meant what the author was influenced by what the author said in later interviews <laughs> like none of that counts text only That's true. um but i really can't i i can't do that with walt i think with walt um his because his his work is so transcendental and also so real it is very much in his life and is very much steeped in his life and his experience and so that's not something i can do and nor would be something i would feel comfortable doing so i just have to accept that i'm right contradicting and... myself by by yeah so. <laughs> yeah and i mean i i said reading the poem by rumi earlier that i think divorcing the poem itself from the fact that its author was a muslim would be wrong yeah so just like people poetry contradicts itself uh and and examining i think every human art every human like humanity uh human like the humanities like art literature poetry all that all kind of contradict themselves because they're all extensions of ourselves so they contradict themselves occasionally which is frustrating if you are of the scientific mind but if you are of the humanic or the artistic mind um, it can be quite, quite fun <laughs> to talk about. So, well, my degree is specifically in anthropology <laughs> with a concentration in archaeology. So I guess I'm, I'm a person who has been trained academically to be able to say like, "Fuck, yeah, people dude. are weird." 
It's just like that's what you just gotta say sometimes. You just gotta shrug and be like ritualistic purposes. Yeah. Ritual purposes. Ritual purposes. <laughs> if you are ever reading any article about archaeology and you come across something like and they describe an artifact as like we assume this had ritual significance or was used for ritual purposes that's shorthand for one of two things it's we have no idea <laughs> we just don't know or it's this was related to sex and we don't want to say that, that. Is so true oh my gosh that's why I, I really love archaeology and I really love knowing you so that way I can live vicariously through you as you talk about archaeology sometimes, which is fun. Um, there, I'm so glad I can offer that into <laughs> your life. Um, so there's another there's another uh, little stanza that I wanted to read that is important to me um, since I like I I have this one starred in written down and I have a little like little sticky. Uh, um, sticky note thing like pointing it out and so I'll read it uh, I exist as I am that is enough if no other in the world be aware I sit content and if each and all be aware I sit content so this this little stanza here is kind of like a microcosm of existence really this sort of like a complete circle of life where I exist and that's 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 all. And if no one notices me existing, or if everyone sees me existing, it doesn't affect how I exist, kind of thing, which which is um, a, a a great sentiment. I try to I try to remind myself of trying to do because I often get caught up in fearing that no one no one would care about me, or no one cares about me, or or get anxious that like too many people are thinking about me and judging me. And so like having to remind myself, like I exist, I am me. I like no one else's opinions of me is going to, uh, changes the fact that I still exist, which is, um, which can be reassuring. Right. There's a very, what I'm thinking of right now is the very trans and kind of, in a way, very non-binary specifically. Um, I mean, it is something that applies to the wider trans community, but it's something that I see among non-binary people specifically is that, like, the you that exists in other people's minds, like, knowing that there is a version of you that exists in other people's minds and it doesn't necessarily match who you actually are, it's, it's very scary. scary. Uh, that's something I definitely experienced myself being a trans woman. Just like knowing that I've met people and will meet people who will only ever think of me as a man and think like, and then like, and I, there's nothing I can do to change that opinion. It, it's scary. It, it, it's quite scary. Yeah, existing in a world like, like for me, I have the same thing but as like people are always going to think of me as a woman and it's I often think about like like you have this nightmare <laughs> scenario in your head of like maybe so, like it would be so cool if someday I were the sort of like cool scientist that got newspaper articles written about me and then I have to sit there and go 
are they gonna use the right pronouns mm. are they gonna or are they gonna call me she the entire time like am i gonna have to have that conversation it's like margaret mead the, the existence of queer people is such that we all eventually end up as margaret mead with future college students sitting around debating whether or not you were actually <laughs> in gay love uh yeah and i think it's a good uh, this is a good moment to mention um walt walt himself is purportedly like people debate whether he was if he was queer or not if he was uh gay or homosexual or bisexual um whatever he was he definitely was just just by reading him i instantly connect with his with his with his writing like right it's the when you're queer and you see another queer person like even if they say nothing about being queer but they're just describing their life you're like oh yeah yeah queer. definitely like th th this guy just loved hanging out on grass and just loved the way grass felt and like just the way he talks about men sometimes in, in um, Leaves of Grass, it is just, like, very much apparent, like, oh, he's definitely into dudes, um, which is, which is, which is, which is, um, it's really nice to see his, uh, this kind of work be present in, um, in 1855 um, and show that, like, we queer people still existed back then we've always existed we just you know we're sometimes preventing ourselves from or have been prevented from expressing ourselves in ways and this is definitely something we've talked about before and i feel like this is something we're going to talk about like every episode because like us being two queer people and talking about um poetry that connects to us as queer people i think that's always going to be something we're going to talk about so Eventually, we might get tired of talking about it, but I don't think that's going to happen. As a non-binary person, I can assure you that I never get tired of talking about <laughs> being non-binary. And as someone who is bi-adjacent, like, the, um, it's the joke of the bi community is that when you're bi, you never shut up about that's it. That's true. So. That's true. As a mostly, as a mostly, um lesbian person which is a wild statement to say but you know we all contain multitudes we're all complicated um uh i i i, I feel that that like i like talk about being into women very much a lot uh and y you know this as my friend straight people also talk about being straight a lot but it doesn't like ping as being like oh you're talking about being straight again because straight is seen That's as the true. default so it only becomes like oh you talk about being a lesbian so much because that like pings on the on the oh this is something yeah. different radar that, that, that's true and and like it's also sort of a sense of like communicating to other people uh, of who you are essentially like like if we if we assume if like if people assume that everyone is straight i have to go out of my way to tell people that i'm queer or else they're gonna assume i'm straight and i don't yeah. want that <laughs> like i've often ever since i, I was about like 
14 or 15 when I first came out as asexual and ever since then when I meet someone new it's like one of the first things out of my mouth is something like related to the fact that I'm aromantic and asexual because like I just want to get that out of the way I want to make sure that it's in there so that they can't mistake my intentions that's so true you have to like come out literally you have to come out to every person you meet and be like this is because like it's sort of in this vein of people who are queer um and like if you're in a space where it's safe for you to come out and like talk about being queer those types of spaces are also very hyper aware of people's needs and uh triggers like 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 they're they're very hyper aware of like being respect being respecting of you and so like to co- so you sort of have to you sort of and sort of like the downside in my mind of it is sort of you have to come out with like the things that you are that uh, of, about you that you probably wouldn't tell a normal per- like a, would tell a regular person you you have to come out and say like I'm a lesbian I'm trans I like I am mentally ill like you have to talk about these things so people can like understand it when sometimes these are things that like should be you know talked about like should be like not 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 brought out immediately especially if you're working towards relationships with people as friends and stuff like that but right it's um it's the i mostly see this on the internet is the it and specifically on tumblr is the idea of like the debate about like you don't actually have to put all of your labels into your description you don't need to let everyone know how old you are or that you're like what flavor of queer you are or that you have like xyz specific mental illness or specific trauma but there's like a a legitimacy that you gain by Uh doing that where the assumption is if you don't do that then you are not queer and not mentally ill and whatever and it's like no like what we should be assuming is just the best of everyone and we should be treating everyone kindly like if you wouldn't say something to me as a disabled person then you shouldn't say it to an exactly. abled person yeah. and, and that's sort of like that's this this whole this whole conversation is kind of like that is is a double-edged sword essentially of like um if you do if you do go out and say all the all these things that you are you you could you run the risk of you're like you're exposing yourself so you're you're expo- you're exposing yourself to the risk of of someone who has a specific who's like specifically like like denies or hates whatever part of you they're going to come out of the woodwork and they're going to go for you but if you say nothing about who you are and like you but and then you decide to talk about something that is personal to you someone's going to come out of the woodwork and say you can't talk about this because you're not so-and-so because you didn't say you're so-and-so and And then you have to be like but i am so-and-so and And it like that's 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 the sort of double-edged sword i'm trying to get at here this is going a bit deeper into it but as an arrow ace person i often have this as someone who is both arrow ace and bi adjacent the experience of like talking about my experiences with those and having people who are neither arrow ace nor bi 
come at <laughs> me about it of like no you can't say you experienced that because you're not gay or you're not a lesbian and this is a lesbian thing it's like you know experiences can cut a broad stroke across many groups of people yeah. even fuck even straight people i'm gonna say it straight people can experience the same sorts of like like i have my ace experiences but I am willing to believe that those experiences that I have that feel to me as being very much related to being asexual, there are probably straight people who have experienced yeah, it Yeah, and then this sort of boils back down to the the multitudes thing the, of Walt's line, like, I contain multitudes, I, cannot, I contradict myself. Like, everyone contains multitudes, and, like, so it makes sense that eventually someone's going to have an experience similar to how someone else with a completely different life has an experience and they're going to line up and be similar and that's okay that like that happens and you need to accept that it happens it's because we all live in a society that demands that everyone fits within a very narrow paradigm but then also punishes people for fitting within it's great, that isn't paradigm it? i love our society so much and that is my personal soapbox <laughs> just gonna is gonna take our oh. soap boxes and just stack them on top of each other, climb up to the top and punch God in the face. I don't know. Put me on top of your shoulders and we'll be we can like stack up like Voltron. <laughs> Voltron, but it's soap boxes. <laughs> Soapbox Voltron. That's all put that on a t-shirt. Oh my god. Soapbox Voltron. So if we hadn't already chosen they're called lyrics, <laughs> dumbass, as the title of this episode. I think soapbox. No, Voltron that's a really be. tough contender, though. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I'm gonna have to put a serious thinker on there. Okay, I'll have to, I'll consult. I'll consult my when I when I go back and edit this. I'll see which one I like more. <laughs> I want to say real quick regarding the poem because I feel like we went way out into. The far we fields. really took a stroll out there. I This is going to be very on brand for me, but the line that caught me the most was definitely, I know I am <laughs> deathless. I know this orbit of mine cannot be swept by the carpenter's compass. I know I shall not pass like a child's carlicue cut with a burnt stick at night. See, what is a carlicue? Do you know? I, I looked it up. It is a, another way of spelling the word curly Q. So I assume that it is. Um, so, you know, when you're a kid at the like and you're having a bonfire and you have a stick that has an ember on the end and you draw the patterns oh. in the air, I assume that is what. OK. Uh, he's describing here. And I say that because that is like. A very specific experience of my childhood, including accidentally setting myself that's, on fire. Yeah, that's another dumbass thing that you have done as a child. I made my own charcoal pencils and I got caught on fire <laughs> while doing it. You're a freaking valedictorian. I can't believe this. Listen. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> There'll never be a day where I won't just 
rip you apart for being both the smartest and dumbest person I know. Oh my gosh. Yeah, no, I just love Walt Whitman so much, even despite his flaws. Um, and I wish I could just, like, read... I'm probably definitely going to come back with more of, of his poems from Leaves of Grass, just because it's so much... It's such a dense piece of work, and it's such a great piece of work. And there's so much relatable stuff in he it. He has a very wonderful grasp of meter mm -hmm. and rhythm. And this is, again, why, like... A poem in its original language is going to be superior to a translation of a poem is it's the meter it's the the feel of the words and he has a good grasp of that and knows where to put his words in order to make the sensory experience of reading mm. his poems yeah. Very good. Obviously, seeing something written down and hearing it, like, out loud are two completely different things. And there are some poems that are better, like, read versus heard. Yeah. I, I definitely, I definitely, when I read, because I've, I've had this book since, um, oh my gosh. I've had this book for a while, since high school. Um, and I've kept it with me. I haven't finished it. <laughs> uh, Oh, the dark ages. Yeah, I haven't finished it just because, like, it's such a dense read and, like, I need to really... Because I want to give it the respect and attention it deserves. So, like, I'm on page 77 of a hundred and so-and-so book because I will have to stop and reread oh things over and over again just so I can understand it and really feel it. Because it's... The language is a little bit archaic because it's 200 years old. And so trying to... And, and then just having to understand it like really boil it down and like disseminate it into my brain is always fun but i will say reading it aloud you have a completely different process of reading <laughs> I than i do i generally if it if it were other poems i think i would be easier to understand but it's just his specific language i think for me um but one thing that i noticed just reading it out loud because i think this is the first time I've read it out loud to anybody. I understood it so much better just by reading it out loud and like talking, get, talking about it to a person. And that's something I'm really grateful for as this episode, which is, to, which is why I'm really glad I brought this up to this episode. I'm glad we can do that. I definitely like as you were reading it, I was very much like. Again, the sensory experience, I don't have any better words to explain it. The sensory experience of hearing it was very good <laughs> to me. It felt nice. <laughs> I liked it. It was good. I liked it. It was nice to listen to. <laughs> it's... <laughs> I my high school English teacher is hanging over my shoulder going, Don't good, say yeah. good. Oh my gosh. Use your use your ten dollar <laughs> words and I'm just sitting here like I don't My um I can't do that. My uh drama teacher in high school It was exquisite. Um, would deride us for like we had a running joke in my drama class about whenever anyone did a scene or a monologue or anything, the first thing everyone says was, It was good, I liked it. And then, like, if you can't come up with anything else to say, that's what you would say. It was good. I liked it. 
even if it was bad. <laughs> um, um, so, like, no, I, I, I understand. It's sort of like how we keep saying yeah and right. It's like, we're, these are words that we're just putting out there because we don't want silence. But as our brains... At some point, I am going to, like, bring a poem onto this that I have chosen specifically because I want you to hate it okay, and tell okay. me so. Hot take. Love it. Like we were talking about on Sunday, um, I somehow made it through, like, being friends with multiple music people for five or six years and coming out the other side with atrocious taste in music still intact. That's because music majors have atrocious music tastes in general. I say this as a music major, my taste in music is kind of trash. Um, So... That's true, but I do remember forcing you and several other people to listen to Touchtone Telephone for the first time, and I was vibing, <laughs> and the rest of you were making faces at me like I had just, like, like I had just killed your dog in front of you. <laughs> That's, oh yeah, I remember that now. That was a fun time. I, it's grown on me. Lemon Demon has grown on me. Lemon Demon is good. Like a like a cancer has grown on me. <laughs> okay. I think this might be a good stopping point. I think we've talked pretty good, pretty long while. We're at about almost one and a half hours, which is bonkers. Did you still want to read oh your my God. poem? Okay, so. I got really angry earlier today, and thank you, you for reminding me to do this. So I got really angry today because there are ants in my kitchen, uh, and so I'm going to read 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 a poem that I wrote about about this, and it's called Ants. And do I have to do the uh, the the clearing throat sound for my own poem as well? Yes, <laughs> I do. Okay, okay. you do. <clears throat> <clears throat> there are ants in the kitchen. This means that nothing can be done for the rest of the year. They are ants in the kitchen. This means the bread cannot be baked. The solution to such a problem is so simple, it is impossible. It's easier to let the ants stay in the kitchen than to put in the effort to force their eviction. Why change what you do that brought them here in the first place? That requires effort. Effort requires motivation. Motivation is gone because there are ants in the kitchen. And that was my dramatic reading of my own poem. <laughs> that is the exact feeling that you, that like I have had that too of encountering an insect or a spider like unexpectedly. And that's just like, that's my yeah, whole except day it's gone. It's fucking so many ants. And it's, ah, uh, it's so, so many, many ants. Vico. There were so many. <laughs> I'm so uh, sorry. My building is made of concrete, so I don't actually get like very many bugs, even though I am a slob. Uh, but when I lived in a house, we had an ant infestation that happened every summer, and it was the it's worst. So bad. Okay, that was that was my dramatic reading. Maybe eventually Vico will bring a poem 
of Pharaoh here <laughs> to Ars Poetica, a podcast about poetry. I do have many poems. I have a poem that's only five lines long. I keep thinking that I'm that it's like just the one stanza and I'll add more to it, but I It's done. It's fine the way it is. <laughs> That's poetry, baby. It does not have a title. <laughs> and I th- I wrote it ah fuck in October, October 2019. Dark times. Not as dark as now, but dark times. Not as dark as now. It's I see you out there pretending to dance under the moonlight, eyes cold, feet bare, waiting for my curiosity, but I don't really care. Fuck, that's a good one. Thank you. I don't usually do rhyming. Sometimes I feel like rhyming is, like, you either have to be really good at it, like, rhyming can be something that poets who are really good at poetry do as like, a, oh, I'm going to challenge myself to write a poem that's still good, even though it has <laughs> a rhyming scheme. Yeah. Versus like, and then there's amateur poetry, which I wrote a lot of as a youth, where like you rhyme because you think poetry is supposed to rhyme and it just, you end up with these cliches that you read later and you're just Ooh, like, oh. Yeah, I hate rhyming. Rhyming is my worst enemy because I'm bad at it. Uh, um, so I just write free verse and just weird things. So, but yeah, I think next episode we're, we should bring our own stuff. And now that I said it on here, that means we have to. Yes. So. Now we have to. Okay. Well, thank you for listening. So is... So is next episode going to be a, like, we only bring our own poems and then discuss them together, or we bring our own poems in addition to the poems we read? Well, we managed to grab a whole hour and a half out of just single two poems. So I think think if we just bring our own poems and just talk about them, I think that'll be great. We're very good at talking. Yeah, as you can tell um, by listening to our podcast. Ars Poetica. I don't know why. This is like the f- this Ars is like Poetica. the fifth time I've said the title of our podcast. Um, Ars, Ars Poetica. Poetica. If I say it enough times, maybe more people will listen to it. Uh, we <laughs> maybe we can summon viewership. Uh, well, but thank you for real, for real this time. This is the end of the episode for real. Thank you for listening to Ars Poetica, a poetry about podcasts with me, Avery. You're supposed to say your name at this point. You're supposed to say your name. <laughs> you said a poetry about podcasts, and I'm trying to figure out if you did that on purpose or not. Did I really say that? Oh my god. Yes. <laughs> so I guess it wasn't on purpose. <laughs> okay, take two. Thank you for listening. <laughs> I'm just going to fade this out. Thank you for listening. Goodbye. <laughs> Say goodbye, Vico. Bye. Bye. I love you all deeply and dearly. Please stay healthy and safe and read plenty of poetry to forget about the, like, dismal nature of the world at this moment. Thank you so much. Goodbye. 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 <laughs>